everyone, and welcome back to Let's Unpack That. It's uh, just Paul today um, and a couple uh, really exciting guests that I'm excited to share with. So um, today's episode, as you can tell from the name of the episode, is about refugee resettlement. So talking about refugees, immigration, migraine, migrants, the migraines, <laughs> the, migraine, the migraines of the refugee crisis. Um, and um, I'm excited to do that with two people who are really passionate about this, who are trained in this, who do this for a living. Um, so I think that you guys are going to really enjoy this episode. So um, welcome back to Let's Unpack That. It is your uh, kind of now weekly podcast where it's just me at this point, um, unpacking topics at the top of my mind through the lens of anxiety, depression, immigrant rights, refugee rights, and everything in between. Um, so today uh, with me are uh, Melissa and Sarah, um, and I would love for them to introduce themselves to you all um, because um, they actually do this stuff for a living. And it's not often that we get experts on the podcast and that's not to put you guys as, as experts or put that pressure on you. Um, but just the stories I think that you're going to be able to share with our listeners will be really key. So I would love for maybe Melissa, we start with you, um, you know, to kind of introduce yourself, your role um, with your organization um, and kind of what you do for them on a daily basis. Yeah. Thanks Paul for having us. We're, we're really excited to, to be here, be a part of this with you. Um, my name is Melissa Suluf, and um, we're here in Indianapolis. We both work for Exodus Refugee Immigration, one of the refugee resettlement agencies here in Indianapolis. Um, my role, I'm uh, what's called the pre-arrival specialist. Um, and what that means is that I do a lot of the processing of the cases when they get assigned to our local agency. So I, I do a lot of the prep work before clients even arrive here in Indy. Um, so I, I receive their information and create case files and um, make sure all of our notes and databases are up to date. Um, and so that we're all prepared when when refugees come come here to Indy. That's super exciting. I also realized that I'm moving to Columbus, so I'm like three hours from you guys. Yeah. So I would love like if there's an opportunity to like meet you guys too in person and like see your work live. Um, because I think that that sounds really exciting. Um and Sarah, would love for you to introduce yourself as well. Awesome. Thank you. Hi everyone. My name is Sarah Hindi, and I also work at Exodus Refugee Immigration and Recently, my title changed. I'm now the Outreach and Communications Manager. But for the last four years, I have been um, engaging Hoosiers in our city and across our state with the mission of Exodus through volunteerism, advocacy, education, and also help, um, telling, helping share and uplifting the refugee stories um, in our agency on social media and in media interviews as well. So as I said, when we were prepping for this, I was going to have more questions that popped up. But um, like, Sarah, I guess, how did you get involved in Exodus? Like, what's sort of your story or your passion that drives you or your anxiety around it? <laughs> like, you know, what was kind of your your reason for getting involved in this type of work um, that I find particularly noble, I'll say? Yeah. So on a, per, uh, on a personal level, I can talk a lot about this, but I'll keep it brief. I'm a granddaughter of four Palestinian refugees um, who spent most of their life in place of a, a country, to a uh, safe place to call home and have spent, you know, um, have moved from different places in different countries. I'm an uh, immigrant myself with my family. We immigrated from Jordan to Indianapolis when I was five years old. So obviously the mission is near and dear to my heart on a personal level. And uh, professional level, I got engaged, uh, got involved with this work when I, um, as an intern at Exodus, and I also was a family mentor. So I mentored the first Syrian family that came to Indianapolis. And I originally got found out about Exodus and wanted to really get involved was 
Um, you mentioned anxiety, and I think anxiety was the reason, but also anger. Yeah. <laughs> frustration and having built that frustration, you know, living, I'm a Muslim Arab American woman living in the Midwest. And of course, I, that comes with a lot of anxiety, just, you know, living here in a messed up points of my life feeling like I didn't have a place in the Midwest or in Indiana. It was really hard for me to call Indiana home. And it's not something that I always did. But having gone through all those challenges, now I'm proud to call Indiana home. And it was not easy to say. And so and then now being a part of welcoming refugees and allowing and advocating for them and um, having allowing them a place to call home in Indiana. And I think that's really important because I, I tell my friends this all the time. Like, I feel like when I'm advocating for refugees, I'm also advocating for myself too. Mm. A lot of people still will, you know, like as in, you know, this whole entire immigrant rhetoric will argue that like, I also don't belong here or that I am less American than anyone else. So that's kind of my personal story and professional journey to what led me to being at Exodus full time. It's a powerful journey. Um, it's more than I can say of what drove me to my corporate career in pharmaceuticals. Um, so <laughs> um, I, I'm curious, Melissa, if your story was kind of similar. And I'm also curious, too, of like kind of a little bit about your passion or your anger, or your anxiety around this stuff, too. Um, does it resonate or, or do you have a little bit of a different approach? Yeah. Yeah, um, it it resonates in some ways, but um, I think Sarah and I have have definitely had different journeys that have brought us both here together. Um, I my my um, ancestry weren't um, refugees, but I am a great granddaughter of immigrants from Eastern Europe. But it's a you know very different very different story um, when thinking about Europeans immigrating to um, the United States. So, I feel that. Yeah. So. yeah. Oh, um, very, very different. But um, I actually first got involved in this work when I was living in Chicago. I worked with um, a Frontland Alliance organization where we worked with asylum seekers. And that was really my first um, foot in the door to working alongside immigrants and just working to see like how, where I can fit to help other people feel like they fit in. So not to not to overstep in any way, but to to see more about how I can accompany people rather than um, just you know like do the work for them or or feel like I have all the answers because I definitely don't have all the answers. <laughs> that is so so real. So I started out first in case management in Chicago, um, which actually gave me a lot of anxiety just the having a case management position. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was like, I don't know actually if I if I really can can do this. Um, but then when I was moving back to Indiana, because I'm originally from Indiana, um, so when I was moving back to be closer to family, I was just like, well, I actually really miss a lot about what I used to do, and that's what mm-hmm. led me here to Exodus, where I. I also started as a case manager, um, which again, gave me a lot of anxiety just (laughs) being a a case manager. I I very quickly realized I was like, okay, I've tried this twice now. I definitely think the case management side is not where my strengths lie, but, um, but thankfully, you know, a a position had opened up and I interviewed for it and and got my current role, um, which I've had for almost two years now. Um, And it's been a great transition because I've, I've found my place where I can, you know, still like help and support the agency and still, you know, see clients and interact with them, but um, a little bit more aligning with my, with my strengths in the workplace and yeah. a lot less anxiety because of that. So. It's, it's interesting. Like I, I feel that um, I, I have to imagine um, I feel weight at my job, right. You know, like just working 
on behalf of small businesses, not, you know, to the extent or per- personal, I would say, extent that maybe you guys feel too. Um, so I'm, I'm really curious to kind of unpack that with you guys today. And you've already mentioned terms, you know, like case management. Um, I think, um, Sarah, you mentioned um, being a family mentor or something like that. Um, so I'm really excited to get into this with you guys today. So um, I hope that this was enough of a teaser to keep people around uh, for the main kind of unpacking segment of the episode. But we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back to fully unpack refugee resettlement and what the heck is going on in Washington today. This episode of Let's Unpack That is brought to you by Modern Botanical. And if you follow me on Instagram, you already know exactly what I'm talking about. Modern Botanical creates handcrafted maple planters and ships them with sustainable plants that thrive beautifully in water. And if you're new to growing plants in water like I am, Modern Botanical has the perfect way to display plants throughout your house. I just bought the Coconina Planter set and I am absolutely obsessed, Um, especially because I'm so used to killing my plants. Um, But Modern Botanical makes it easy. They hang on your wall in one minute or less. They're handcrafted in California and they partner with sustainable loggers who pay employees a fair wage so you know you are buying as responsibly and ethically as possible. Unlike other online propagation frame and sellers, Modern Botanical grows and sells their own plants that grow in water to ensure the highest quality and to ensure that they fit seamlessly within the frames that they build. They guarantee plants arrive in a happy, healthy condition or they'll replace them for free. And right now, as a listener of Let's Unpack That, you can save 20% and get free shipping with the promo code ITSPAUL20. Just head to modernbotanical.shop to get started and see all of the different products that they have to offer. That's promo code it's Paul 20 and modern botanical dot shop. If you get it, if you like it, let me know, send me a picture. I would love to see it and I would love to reshare it on social media. Thanks so much and take care. Welcome back. Um, the first thing I want to talk about, um, because you guys have both worked in this area for a while, um, definitions of words, I think are very important. Um, I think that I use words like refugee, immigrant, migrant, asylum seeker, displaced persons. I use all of these terms like interchangeably. And I know that that's not really what is appropriate. Um, so I would love as we're kind of like moving our way through these conversations to start with some of those basic definitions. Um, how do you define a refugee? How do you define an asylum seeker? Like, how do you define a migrant? Because Oftentimes what people hear when they're talking about this stuff is like a, a quick conversation with a family member who's like, get those migrants out of And you're like, I don't even know how to like, like, how do I contextualize what you just said? You know, so I, I would love for you to help contextualize for us and for me, frankly, um, those definitions. So um, I don't know, Melissa, if it makes more sense to start with you or Sarah, whoever, whoever wants to take it. Yeah, sure. I'll, um, I'll go ahead and start. First and foremost, I think I want uh, we want to just um, be clear, like for for refugees and asylum seekers or um, asylees specifically, the definition is actually the same for what defines a refugee and what defines an asylum seeker. Um, the main difference between those two is actually the process to to get that status. Um, so so the, the more general definition is that um, a refugee or an asylum seeker is somebody who their home country due to a well-founded fear of being persecuted um, and then they go to a neighboring country um, for refugees they'll go to a neighboring country um, to request refugee status 
um, and then they go through that whole process overseas. Whereas for asylum seekers, um, they'll flee their home country again due to a well-founded fear of being persecuted. Um, but then they will request asylum in, and we're talking specifically about the United States. So they'll, you know, flee their home country and request asylum after they've crossed the border and arrived in the United States or come into the country, however they've arrived. And that um, could be at the southern border, right? Or it could be through a plane ride, right? Like yeah. it's right. Yeah. I, that's one thing I've always found interesting when I talk to my family members about the immigration crisis. And they're like, every, it's all happening at the border. And I'm like, at the cycle, I feel like you're just completely missing the point of like how all of this stuff works and how people claim asylum and how they start to look for protections. You mentioned kind of fleeing persecution. I think, it, does that have like different definitions in your world? Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah, so there there are like five main categories of persecution um, that is kind of um, part of the definition. So it's um, being persecuted on basis of race, religion, nationality, um, political opinion, or being a member of a um, social group. So like, for example, being LGBTQ is, is one example of like being a member of a, of a particular social group. Got it. Yeah. 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 And so for, for refugees, as I said, like the process, all of the process happens overseas. So that's like a series of interviews and then being approved. And then even after approval, there are medical checkups and just like a lot of waiting, which then incurs more medical checkups if the previous ones have expired. Um, and then travel is arranged and then refugees will come to the United States. Whereas, um, like I said before, with asylum seekers, they're already in the United States. And then again, there are processes of interviews and vetting before a status is or is not given. Yeah. And, and how, I guess, how long does that process take? Yeah, that's that's a great question. And the quick answer is we don't know um, because mm. it really varies um, a lot. And it, um, you know, talking, we would be a little remiss if we didn't at least mention COVID. Um, with COVID, there the waiting times have been delayed even more because especially overseas, a lot of the processing just completely shut down, um, especially during the, the big height of COVID. Um, and things are slowly starting back up again. But we, I mean, we looked up a statistic that it could take approximately 10 to 26 years yeah. um, for, for the refugee process. So it's just, there's no way to predict how long it could take. I appreciate the way that you shared that because like I'm thinking about even when I tried to get my passport renewed during COVID and it took six months, right? And like, that's a service that they were prioritizing because that was for American citizens who needed an updated passport, you know, because I was like, I'm going to be have to travel soon after this pandemic is over. Like I'm not fleeing persecution, you know, although many memes on the internet, I'm sure would say that waking up in America every day is being persecuted. Um, but, but probably not in many cases, at least for people who look like me to that kind of like ex extent. And so I think like, that waiting process and that, that interview process and the intensity of that, I think that that's probably a misconception that people have about the work it takes to become a refugee. So uh, curious, like from the like misconceptions of about refugees in general, like I think a lot of people think it's like, oh, they show up, they're here, they're like, they're trying to take over our country, like, right? But like, that's one, right, that we all know. But what are some other kind of misconceptions about refugees and this kind of challenge, I guess, that you guys face? 
Yeah, I mean, there are certainly so many misconceptions and stereotypes, and those are all built on fear and hate and misinformation. And um, one of them is that refugees are a burden on the economy, which is not true. And I hate to turn this humanitarian conversation about like numbers and taxes and finance and economy, but <laughs> do it, do it. We love it. Yeah. <laughs> That's what speaks to people, right? That's what yeah. speaks to people with misconceptions. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, absolutely. And so a study by the Department of Health and Human Services found that refugees brought in $63 billion more in government revenues over the past decade than they cost. And this report came out um, during the Trump administration, and they actually tried to hide it for many months um, because it proved that some of the misinformation as false. Um, so again, it's not something people realize. Like even during a pandemic, refugees and immigrants are still not a burden on our economy. Actually, they're on the front line serving our communities and have been since the start of the pandemic and since before the pandemic. So six million immigrant workers, that includes refugees, asylees, asylum seekers, uh, folks who are undocumented, immigrants themselves have been on the front lines, keeping the United States residents healthy and fed during COVID-19. And I think that's just such an important number to highlight because it's, you know, millions and millions of people across the country who are on the front lines and so many of them are immigrants. And that's like that piece about capitalism, right? Like we all know it's that oftentimes immigrants, migrants, refugees tend to take lower paying jobs or they are not guaranteed high paying jobs, right? And who did we all rely on, right? The essential worker for the past year and a half. So I have to imagine, like you said, those 6 million people played a huge role in that. Um, What are some of the other misconceptions about refugees or maybe common stereotypes? Another common misconception is that refugees don't have legal status or refugees are um, quote unquote illegal. And I, I put that in quotes because we definitely do not use that word around here. We do, <laughs> we do not say that any human is illegal. Um, and so we first of all just want to convey that undocumented immigrants and people without status in the United States shouldn't be feared. Um, a broken system is really what makes it so hard for people to get this quote unquote legal status. And so it's it's the system, not the people. So that's like a really big point that we we want to make sure is conveyed. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, when talking about refugees specifically, it is it is a legal process. Um, they refugees will get interviewed um, initially by the um, UNHCR, which is the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. Um, so they'll, they'll get an initial interview with them. But then USCIS also does interviews um, overseas. And so the United States government itself is interviewing refugees even before refugee status gets granted. So it's definitely um, a lengthy process, but it is a, a legal process in the eyes of the U.S. government. Um, and there are tons of background checks and tons of interviews. That's like what I remember, too, even just going through the K-1 visa process, which is totally different and it, the fastest, usually, to, to, to bring someone in from another country. The amount of background checks that we went through, I mean, the amount of money that we paid, it, like $5,000 now, probably over the course of a few years. Police reports, you know, you had to pay for the one in the UK, then you have to pay the processing fee for here. It's not easy. And I feel like also when people come here, it's not necessarily easy to get a job either. So like they have these fees, right? They have legal fees that they have to pay. Then they have probably just general kind of like administrative fees, right? That they have to pay. Is that something that like 
you guys help within your job or are there programs out there that that help people with sort of like the payment and the processing of, of this stuff? Yeah. So for medical background checks, uh, medical exams overseas, they refugees unfortunately have to do pay for that and they do pay for it out of pocket. And if once those medical exams expire and refugees don't travel by that time, they do have to redo that process again and pay for it again. And refugees are also signed a loan overseas saying that they're gonna pay their travel ticket. Uh, once after six months of their arrival from the United States, they will get their first bill in the mail and it's a monthly payment until they are able to pay it off. And it's not like refugees don't get a discount to get on the airplane. Um, so, you know, a family, like one, uh, one family that I worked with was a family of 12 and their travel loan was about $20,000. Right. So they're kicking off the American dream by already being in debt because they have to pay that off. And it has, you know, it takes so many years to get that paid off. Yeah, I, I, I have to think, especially for 12 people, you know, like I, that was, you know, my, my parents who, um, you know, during the course of the pandemic, I found out that I was raised in extreme privilege monetarily. I always knew kind of from where I grew up, but I didn't necessarily know how well off my parents were. I mean, my parents, that was $20,000 was the cost of a family trip to Hawaii for us. And there's not as many as 12 people there. And you think about that, that's like people's dream vacation, right? We can all go away. We can all do Christmas in Hawaii together. And it like, that was like such a big expense for my parents, but that was for fun. And so again, I didn't realize my privilege at the time, but I remember being like, wow, that's a lot of money to drop on a trip like this, but fleeing persecution, <laughs> like fleeing for survival in search of a better life for two, maybe two parents, maybe a grandparent and, and, and you know, nine, 10, 12 kids. Right. I'm just trying to put myself in the mindset of, of somebody that does that, right? Like that is somebody I feel like who's coming here out of or a real desire for safety. Right. And I feel like that's not the story we get told. Yeah. I don't know. It's again, right. We said it's rooted in fear. It's rooted in misinformation, but um, I guess like, are, are there other stereotypes about refugees? Cause I think about, I don't know, even as it relates to like, we've heard refugees are violent right? Like we've heard stuff like that. And I, I'm pretty sure those statistics are can easily be disproven as well with a quick Google search. But are there other misconceptions that you guys face in your work? Yeah. Um, I mean, align with what, with what you just said, um, kind of like we've, we've heard people say like all refugees look a certain way or like speak, speak a certain language or like all refugees are like X, Y, Z. They're just like, all of them are like this it can be very dehumanizing because we we know that any one refugee does not look, think, or act a certain way. Um, refugees do not have just one religion or one language or, you know, one set of beliefs or things that they dream about. They're just like any any person have their own beliefs and language and, and everything. Um, uh, it's a lived experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly, exactly. Um, and like one of, one of the things I think to insert here is just talking a little bit more specifically about, um, the nationalities, um, we work with yeah, as well as like nationalities of, um, just kind of like the general refugee population worldwide. Um, so like a little bit of statistics that there are 79.5 million forcibly displaced people, um, worldwide. And this number was taken at the end of 2019. Um, as far as we know, we don't have like an updated number, but it's very close to 80 million, if mm -hmm. surpassing 80 million at this point. Um, and just 68% of that number um, come from just five countries. 
um, those countries being Syria, Venezuela, Afghanistan, South Sudan, and Myanmar. As we know around here, we call it Burma. Populations that we resettle in the United States and um, specifically here in Indianapolis are, um, we have a lot of Burmese clients um, from Burma, Myanmar, um, as well as from the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Um, mm-hmm. And as Sarah mentioned, we we have had Syrian refugees as well. Um, we're we're hopefully starting to see more with with the Muslim ban being gone now, um, as well as clients from Afghanistan and from Haiti. We've started to um, work with clients from Haiti, and we've worked with clients from Guatemala. So really, just people from all over the place. Um, yeah, it's, it sounds like probably too. I don't know if we can go there on this particular podcast, so feel free to stop me. But um, places where the U.S. has involvement. Syria, Afghanistan, places that we've destroyed, um, you know, and and we've made worse in in many cases. Um, Is that something that you guys experience uh, in your work? Or is that something that you talk about with people, I guess, just as you were saying the countries, I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, that's definitely a point that we always make. And it's something that I always um, have conversations with with people on personal levels. People are always asking, why do we need to welcome refugees? Like the refugee crisis is not our problem. And I'm like, it kind of is because the United States is kind of like the first country to jump when it comes to war. Like <laughs> we don't hesitate when we go to war, but all of a sudden we hesitate when we want to welcome those refugees and more specifically those refugees who um, were the reason behind some of those wars or conflicts that the United States has been a part of. Yeah. And you, I mean, you mentioned you're, you're of Palestinian descent, right? <laughs> like, and I have to imagine that there are going to be some more refugees from Palestine, given what's been going on for the last few weeks. Um, I, I, I just, I find it interesting. And, and, and obviously we know that the, the previous president was terrible um, with the, the refugee um, crisis, but I'm curious about the current administration, right? Kind of looking not forward, but looking at what's happening right now. Um, so what is the, current administration's policy on refugee support um and is that something that you guys support or what are the things you guys push for and advocate for um so sarah i'd love to start with you because i think you mentioned advocacy as part of your work yeah great question so i can you know i can unpack a lot in terms of like what all the different policies and executive orders that were passed in the last four years under the trump administration and i will summarize it by it just basically the process the refugee resettlement and asylum process there was a streamline of a process and it was just just became a hot mess and it was very complicated um and we started restricting the number of refugees the united states uh, welcomed and then who we who the united states welcomed and why the united states welcomed and so the programs have definitely been dismantled in the last four years and we are continuing to see that even under our new administration because the the undo because there is so much undoing that needs to be done and it will not happen o- overnight but some of the things that the uh, biden administration has done so the first one was on day one the muslim ban was rescinded which is of course great news for us and great news for our country as a whole and for specifically immigrant advocates um, and then the second thing that really affected and has and will continue to affect us for the next few months is the presidential determination. So each year, the president determines how many refugees along with Congress, the United States will welcome. And so in our fiscal year begins in October 1st, and runs through September 30th of the following year. So President Trump set the fiscal year presidential determination of 2021 at 15,000 refugees. And this is the lowest number that any president has ever set the refugee number since the start of the program in 1980. 
And it, so it was an, at a, a historic low. And in April, although Joe Biden, you know, ran a, a pro-immigrant campaign, you know, he has he promised to restore the refugee resettlement program. And unfortunately, in April, he came out saying, I'm not going to increase the presidential determination for, re- for 2021 because we're going to focus more specifically on the families at the southern border and asylum seekers. And that was a huge disappointment and frustration for us because we know that the refugee resettlement program and the asylum programs are separate. They're funded separately and they're staffed separately. And the process is also very different. That just brought up a lot of anger and rage across the country. People made phone calls, people wrote letters, people signed on letters um, urging the administration to raise, to increase the presidential determination. So now, fortunately, that number has been increased to 62,500 refugees for fiscal year 2021. And of course, we're on the way to kind of finishing up that fiscal year. And of course, and we won't welcome that many refugees because again, there's just so many policies and processes that have been been dismantled and there's going to be a lot of there needs to be a lot of rebuilding, but that was some hopeful news, as well as the strict categories that were put in place under the uh, Trump administration. Those have been um, taken away. And so luckily we don't have we won't have those categories moving forward. So so basically we have until September 30th to welcome 62,500. The original PD was 15,000. I mean, we haven't even welcomed half of that number. Right. Right. Is that because partially COVID and then partially just the agencies being completely gutted, you know, that we're funding this. Um, so they had to hire a new, like I'm, I'm picturing, right? Like when you clean house and you don't prioritize something, you have to hire all those people back or hire new people, right? And train them to do their jobs. They have to make contacts with people like you guys, right? They have to make contacts with people like internationally, like, and that I guess takes time, right? But like, I hate that the Biden administration couldn't articulate that. And, you know, I, I, I hate that they just said, well, we're just not going to change it. Right. Like that, maybe there was some messaging somewhere. Right. But that gets lost. Right. Because <laughs> all you hear is you're not going to reverse this completely horrible, xenophobic, arbitrary number that, as Sarah, I think you just really put well, we compared it to the situation happening at the southern border, which is completely different than what we're talking about here. Can we not do two things at once? <laughs> right. Yeah. So. And this is probably a loaded question, right? For people like way smarter than us, but like what are the steps we need to take to hit that number even? Like, is it is it really through government funding of programs like and, and additional staff to focus on this stuff? Like reducing wait times and processing times? Is that kind of what it is? Or is it just so much, am I totally simplifying? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's pretty much a lot of it. So it's one staff who, um, officers who need to travel overseas to do the interviews. And right now we're advocating that those interviews can be done on Zoom. They haven't started doing those virtual, but because of the pandemic, there, you know, there's a huge um, pipeline of refugee cases just waiting to be even interviewed by officers. And we, again, because no one's traveling internationally, we're not sure when that's going to happen. Some of it is due to refugees having expired security screenings and expired medical checks, and they are now having to go back and redo those processes, which delays them overseas as well. So Mm -hmm. it's very complicated and (laughs) it's all the things. Right. Which they also have COVID restrictions probably in their country. So not only did we talked about like the cost of the medical test, right. Or the cost of the background checks, right. Like, but 
also like they probably have social distancing requirements in these offices or mask requirements in these like like it's, so it's like they're waiting in line and i have to imagine right we don't have the best system here but i have to imagine it's better functioning than theirs right so like we can usually get a doctor by making a phone call or making an email or you know we have a little bit of a wait time but i have to imagine that process there it takes a lot longer and that feeling that they must have as people why knowing that you're like medical check is about to expire. It's just a ticking clock. Yeah. Right? It's, I mean, since I manage our social media accounts in our uh, contact us form through the website, and I can't tell you how many people contact us as a local resettlement agency from overseas saying like, I'm stuck saying things like, I'm stuck in this refugee camp. Please help me get out. I'm an LGBTQ plus member. I'm, you know, vulnerable for persecution, like all these different reasons. And my response is, I'm sorry, we're not the American government. Like we have no say in the process overseas and we cannot help you. And it's just really heartbreaking because it's life and death for people. And the longer they have to wait, the more closer they are to dying in the countries that they are than they are closer to refugee resettlement. And so it's really heartbreaking to see that. Are there bills in Congress that are proposed or are there representatives or senators that you guys are like, these are the champions of, of, of refugee rights. Like, are there people that you'd be like, this is the bill we need to go to right now. And we're not talking about it enough. I'm curious. Yeah. Yeah, So there's a few bills that have been introduced this year. And in terms of Indiana, I mean, I know Indiana is known as like, you know, we are the home of former governor, Mike Pence, who wanted to ban Syrian refugees. So that is unfortunately our rhetoric. But I'd also like to give a shout out to our very own Congressman Andre Carson, um, who's a congressman in the 7th District, who has been a huge champion uh, for human rights and refugee resettlement and, and um, immigration as a whole. And as for specific policies, so earlier this year, the U.S. Citizenship Act of 2021 was introduced, and there's a lot of like bullet points in this bill that highlight the different processes for refugees, asylum seekers, immigrants. Um, but more specifically, this bill will help create a pathway for citizenship for uh, folks who are undocumented. It will help address root causes of why people flee, and more specifically from countries of El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. This bill also supports asylum seekers. So it's recently introduced in the House, and so we hope that it gets pushed through and passed in the House and moved to the Senate. And just today, which is really exciting, the No Ban Act has been introduced in the Senate. So earlier this year, the No Ban Act was introduced in the House. It passed. And the No Ban Act basically says no matter who's in office, a president cannot discriminate against immigrants, refugees, and asylum seekers based off of country of origin, ethnicity, religion, no matter uh, who they are, where they come from. And then the final bill that has not yet been introduced this year, but it was introduced in the House last year, was the Grace Act basically sets the presidential determination each year at a low of 95,000, stating that the United States will welcome at least 95,000. And if a president would like to increase that number, they can, but they cannot go lower than that number. And as we've learned in the last four years, the program has been extremely dismantled by just one administration with a, you know, a sign of a pen, one signature, it's all it took to dismantle the program. And so um, hope we're doing a lot of advocacy around that. Yeah. And, and the way that you described that, even just from the very beginning, talking about, well, Biden decided it was going to be 62,500. Who, who is he to get to decide that? <laughs> it just seems so stupid. Like, I don't know. Not many things, right? Like, lie with the president, right? Like, and sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes that's a bad thing. But when he's worried about 
political pressure. He's worried about the COVID pandemic. He's worried about the news stories he's going to get from the right saying that he's like an immigrant. Well, I mean, he's going he's to get these stories anyway, regardless of what he does or, or not. Right. Like, but so like, it just seems so silly to me that he would even have direct control over this. It seems like a real way to keep power within the presidency so that anybody, anybody, any president can just say, well, I don't want these people here this year. Like what, who are you to say that? (laughs) That's, that's one of the things we've been talking about is that like until 2016, like refugee resettlement was by and large bipartisan. Right. And so like it was, it was rarely a debate and the number averaged between 85 to 95,000 every year. And it, yeah, it wasn't until 2016 when they were like, no, we'll just not do that now. Like, yeah, it, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense on the claim of right. Like, terrorism right that was one which we all know that's bullshit and every listener of this podcast knows that but the other one being like the economic benefit which i think sarah you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast that there's an economic benefit to bringing and welcoming people into this country and especially now when the majority of and we can all talk about the minimum wage totally separate conversation but like the majority of restaurant jobs are being unfilled right now because people don't want to go back and risk their health for seven twenty-five an hour or $2 an hour plus tips, right? Who's going to fill those jobs? The only people that would ever fill those jobs in the history of our country would be immigrants, migrants, refugees, asylum seekers, right? I find it so interesting that we went from bipartisan to completely partisan. So I hope that those acts that you mentioned, the no ban act specifically, has a real chance of passing, right? Like, uh, of course, it could become a wedge issue, but hopefully Republicans don't make this the wedge issue of something that was completely bipartisan five years ago. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this is for every listener tuning in, call your senators right now, write letters, tweet at them, do whatever, and urge them to um, sign on the No Ban Act. Yeah, preach. The Five Calls app is the app that I've been using recently. And you go into the app, you put in where you live, you put in the act you want to talk about, you look up the status for your rep, and then it literally gives you a script and it has a call button and you just read it. You can leave them a message and they still have to report it. It is the easiest thing to do. I'm curious before we kind of wrap up this segment of the episode, like um, if you had a fully funded refugee resettlement program, what would it look like? What is like pie in the sky dream that we won't get with Joe Biden. We all, we, we all know that. Uh, we might. We might get something closer to that, um, but maybe with the, the next president. But what would it look like for you guys working in this every day? Yeah. Um, I mean, a fully funded program would look like a consistently high admission ceiling number. So um, as Sarah was mentioning with the, with the Graces Act, that there would be, you know, like a set number, like 95,000 or more that would just have a set number every year that can't fluctuate. Like it it could go higher, but like should not go lower because that really impacts us locally because we don't know what to prepare for. We don't know how many refugees we will welcome any given fiscal year. So like that's difficult financially. Well, even like for case managers um, to know how many cases they're even going to have. So like a consistent and high number would be really great um, because like even on the local level, we like it gives us more of a basis to to know what to prepare for. 
Um, and then you can say like, if there's a human tragedy or humanitarian tragedy, right? Like I think back to, um, you know, the, the issues with um, Armenia and Azerbaijan, there are a ton of Armenians now who are completely displaced. Would they want to come to the United States? Maybe not, but that's an opportunity too. Like when there's humanitarian crises like this, the president can, or, or not the president can raise, can, can raise the allotment um, of people that we welcome into this country because there are things going on in the world. Would have been yeah. a great thing to do during the Syrian crisis, right? So uh, sorry to cut you off, Melissa, but what are some of the other things you have pie in the sky? So. No, that's fine. Yeah, and I mean, you're exactly right. And that's the thing, you know, like, like we said, the Graces Act, the No Ban Act, like these all can set the stage for like, once the program is fully funded, we can you know, just welcome refugees, you know, like, we're not going to say like, we'll only welcome these refugees or only these ones, like we will just welcome refugees here in the United States. Um, another thing is, um, it would be nice to have a more streamlined process for refugees to even like make it through the process in a relatively timely manner. The United States has a very unique processing experience than other countries. And so they, they very much have the power to make that process better whether that's, you know, adding additional staff or um, changing the way the process is right now, like something that's more streamlined, that would be just better and faster for refugees to even just like make it through in a timely manner so that they don't have to redo medical checks so that they don't have to continuously be interviewed year after year because they're just waiting otherwise. I mean, Um, you even mentioned, Sarah, the speed at which, like, why can our Congress vote via Zoom? You know, but our refugees can't get interviewed when their lives are at stake. You know, it seems backwards of who we're prioritizing here. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, another thing, too, is just expanding the way that the processes happen. So, yeah, like allowing for for video interviews or allowing for alternative ways um, for all of these things to be done um, would also, again, help streamline, help make it go faster, would just make it more efficient. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, just all around having it, having it return back to just like bipartisan support where it's just like always a program that's supported by the government. Like, that, you know, it doesn't seem like a lot to ask for. And yet here we are. And so, you know, like being able to go back to just being like, please just support the refugee program. <laughs> Not often in the United States do we say like, can we go back to normal, but make a few improvements? Like usually that we're never saying that. Yeah. <laughs> like, right? exactly. yeah. And like an aside and like an addition to add to that, just to talk a little bit about specific numbers um, here at Exodus. So um, we mentioned back in, in 2016, that's kind of when, when everything blew up. Um, so in fiscal year 2016, which was before all of former president Trump's, bans and numbers went into place. We at Exodus resettled 954 people, which is a lot Yeah, here in Indianapolis. Um, How then, big is your team? <laughs> I, what was it? At the, I wasn't working at Exodus, at I Exodus think at the time. We were about 40 people at that time. <laughs> That's a lot. I mean, yes. that's that's 954 is a lot for 40 people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then in, in fiscal year 20, which I, I'm not sure what our staff was down to, but it was definitely, I mean, we were under 30 at that yeah. point. Um, we resettled just 175 people. So it's like you can just really see even on the local level how that impacts the work that we do um, in Indianapolis and I mean, all of the other cities will surely have similar stories, like just of the numbers will be different, but the the drastically lower amount. Yeah, yeah. So that, it, it does. It impacts us very much here on the local level. 
Yeah, it's it's pretty shocking. Um, mm-hmm. Well, we'll take a quick break and then we come back. Uh, we'll talk about how people can get involved. So I'm, I'm curious, you guys have been doing this now for a little while, right? The people that you've met, right? Whether it's in case management or whether as, you know, like welcoming people in sort of being intake specialists and all that stuff or, or outreach. I mean, Sarah, the story you shared about just managing your DMs. Um, wow. Um, I'm, I'm curious. I'd love to start with you, Sarah, on kind of a, a story that you have a, about a refugee um, that, that you've worked with. Yeah, I think one story, of course, every story has been just super powerful Uh, to listen to. And it really is a privilege to do this work each and every day. And one story that sticks um, in my head and kind of follows me everywhere I go is more specifically about a family um, fled Syria, fled to Jordan, and then in Jordan, they were then resettled to Indianapolis in 2016 through Exodus Refugee. And the family was um, a mom and a dad and two of their sons who were in high school during that time, maybe even middle school. And the dad was a pharmacist in Syria and he owned his own pharmacy in Syria. And I think it was one of, you know, it was one of those things where made me realize like people always talk about refugees as if they are poor or uneducated, but don't realize like refugees had ordinary lives just like any of us right now. But then war and violence affected their life and their situation completely changed overnight and it was not in their hands at all. And they had to flee their home countries. And then the family arrived in Indianapolis and the dad, like the jobs that he's had has been mechanic or a warehouse. And so he's left not only behind his family and friends. And I think we don't talk enough about what refugees leave behind. And I think they leave behind so much. Yes, they are fleeing and they are, you know, in a country where there's safety and they live in freedom, but they leave behind so much. And one of that is his own career. Like he just has had to start all over in Indianapolis. And he's told me, I didn't do this for myself. Like I'm old right now. Like I was on my way to retirement anyways. I'm doing this for my children so that they can go to school so that they can have a better life so that they can work in whatever field that they want to work in. And I think it really just stuck to me because I thought and I thought like, wow, the sacrifice that parents have to make to keep their children alive and to have hopes and dreams for their children, which it's very common, just like any other American family, parents have hopes and dreams for their children, and so do refugee families. And so that was uh, that's kind of one of my favorite stories. Yeah, you gave me a good image. It's kind of the world that I work in of small business pharmacy. And um, I mean it's hard for people to step away from pharmacy, like in general, um, but to take such a big leap, um, you know, into another country is, is pretty incredible, especially with the age of high school boys as well. Right. And Melissa, what about you? A story of, of somebody you've worked with over the years or a family you've worked with over the years. I think I often think it's a singular person, but it's not right. It's not, it can, so. it can be, it can be as an aside, we, see an array of, of case composition. Sometimes it's single men who might have a partner overseas still, might not. Sometimes, it, like Sarah mentioned, it's a family of 12. <laughs> so it, it really, the case composition varies a lot. So one of the stories that we wanted to share is about a client who arrived at, um, here in Indianapolis in 2016. He's Congolese. Um, and he left behind his wife, um, who was pregnant at the time. 
Um, and she, she gave birth just um, a few months later after, after he had arrived here in the United States. And one of, one of the services that Exodus assists with, we can help um, file family reunification applications. And so um, he went through this process to um, apply for an alternate visa for his wife and um, child to come here to Indianapolis. I don't know exactly when the application was filed, but it was not long after he had arrived, um, mm -hmm. with, definitely within his first two years. Yeah. And so um, part of my job, I speak with um, U.S. ties, which are our clients who are here in the United States now, but still have relatives overseas. Um, so I, I talked with him a lot about his family because I was like, well, like they're, they're in our pipeline. They're like allocated to us here at Exodus, but we have no idea when they will come. And then just a couple months ago, we got um, the travel notification for his wife and his daughter and they came and it's the most beautiful video of their, their welcome and their greeting at the airport. Cause this was the first time he had met his daughter in person. He had seen right. like video calls and on WhatsApp and things like that, but he had never met her in person. Um, and there's actually, there's been a recent local news story about him and his family. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's a really, a really heartwarming, beautiful story. Oh my gosh. And just the courage that it takes for somebody to leave at that point. Like I think about my dad was at the hospital, right. When I was born standing next to my mom, you know, not, he certainly was not, uh, of course work, he was working for us to have a better life. Right. But he was not on a plane to another country to really help us get a better life, right? And that level of work and courage and like fear is pretty powerful. That's yeah. a beautiful story. They both are beautiful stories. So thank you guys so much for, for sharing that. When we come back, we'll talk about how you guys can get involved. And for our final segment of the episode, we want to talk a little bit more specifically about Exodus, the organization that Sarah and Melissa work for. When we were talking before and during the break, um, Sarah, you mentioned like there are a lot of services that Exodus does. Um, you seem like as a group of, you know, 30 to 40 now, like you probably have your hands in a lot. So what is kind of the scope of your organization to kind of paint that picture for us? Again, yeah, we do. We do a lot here. We have um, a lot of programs within our agency. Um, so we have the reception and placement program, which is um, abbreviated as RNP, which is the primary program that refugees will come through our agency. It's federally funded and things like that. So that's like when people think of the refugee program um, at the local level, it's the RNP program. Okay. Um, okay. So it, within that program, there's my position as the pre-arrival specialist. Um, we have case managers who work with, um, with clients and with families once they've arrived. Um, we have a manager who just kind of helps oversee the different pieces in um, RNP. Um, but then we also have some more extended programs as well. So these are for clients who have been here for longer than just when they first arrived, which it's probably worth mentioning. So for the RNP program, clients are um, eligible for benefits for their first 90 days, um, which 90 days is not really a long time. <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah. 90 so, days and good luck. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> in, in some ways it feels that way. Um, yeah. But that, that's one of the reasons I think why here at Exodus, we also have extended programs um, mm -hmm. with our um, more grant funded and so have um, a little bit of leeway with timing. So, um, but I would say most, most of our programming, um, we can work with refugees during their first five years here in the United States um, outside of the RMP program, like all of our extended programming and other things that we have. 
Um, so part of our extended program, we have a youth program and we have um, a women's program. We also have more intensive case management that helps with um, more like medically sensitive cases or um, cases that really just need a lot of extra support or follow up. We have legal services now. And part of that, we, we do assist with green card applications and we um, assist with the family reunification applications that I had mentioned before. We also have an employment team, which is another big part of um, oh, cool. R&P services. But then also after, even after the initial 90 days, our employment specialists will continue to work with clients to just help navigate employment <laughs> in the city and just in the United States. I mean, we go to school for like 18 years and nobody knows how to write a resume or a cover letter, right? Like, like it, it seems like being here for 90 days uh, and then having to get a job on your own is like not really. <laughs> doesn't really seem like the easiest thing. So that sounds like a great uh, service to help people get jobs, keep jobs, you know, yeah. adjust to their jobs. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. And then another big program um, is our LCOR program. So um, this is our English classes and our trainings and the LCOR program especially provides cultural orientation, which is a big old two-day introduction to life in the United States, which can't be encompassed in two days, but our, but our teachers really do a great job. Um, and then they have consistent English classes throughout the week at multiple different levels based on our client's current English level. Um, and we even have some literacy classes for um, mm. our clients who never even um, went to school or became literate in their native language. Another program that we have is our mental wellness program. Um, so we, we see a lot of anxiety and depression in our clients, um, understandably given how we don't even know the half of what some people have been through. Um, so we, we have a mental wellness program where we have um, therapists on staff um, but we also have created partnerships within the community with other local places in case there are other services that may be more appropriate. Um, but we also have um, some groups as well. You know, we're, we're here to meet people where they're at and what helps them the most. That's awesome. So, yeah, we definitely have a wide array. Yeah, seriously. All of those things sound really essential and, and are so contrary to you know the things that we hear about refugees and of of course i could have assumed that things like this exist or hoped that they did it's great confirmation right because like the things i hear from the conservative people in my life are like we can't just import the world's poor and like what okay number one People are not imports. I just want to like, let's put that out there. But two, it's like, and then they're like, oh, they're not going to force me to speak their language. I'm like, yeah, they're not expecting that. You know, <laughs> like I don't think at all. Like it just like helping people get jobs so that they can be contributing members to the economy um, at maybe a level that they were at in their home country or, or if they can't get there just below, right? Like that's the, the goal. So it, it's just so counterintuitive from the narrative we hear in the news. And I'm curious uh, just kind of how people who listen to this podcast, people who follow me on Instagram, how can they get involved in Exodus or how can they donate? What are some of the, the, the steps that you guys would recommend, though? Besides following on Instagram, of course, Sarah. So. <laughs> yes, please follow us on social media. We're on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, even LinkedIn. And just stay connected uh, with us and help us amplify our messaging. 
You can uh, make a monthly gift or make a one-time gift at our website at www.exodusrefugee.org. Or you could also mail us a check. You know, we're, we're flexible. Venmo, <laughs> <laughs> uh, PayPal. Yeah. <laughs> hey, yeah, we'll make it work. <laughs> Send me an email or give us a call and we'll help you out. Yeah. Um, the final thing that's so important for people to do is to stay informed and to continue to humanize uh, the, you know, immigration as a whole and to com- continue to humanize our local communities are, that are constantly under attack and harmed by policies. Mm-hmm. And I think even when it comes to the refugee and immigrant communities, they're not even just harmed by immigrant related policies. They're also harmed by policies in the here in the United States when it comes to health care, minimum wage, you know, gun violence, like all of those things that affect everyday citizens also affect immigrants and refugees. So we need to, you know, Get loud if you're already not loud and angry and just stay loud and continue to advocate and pay attention because no matter who's in office, if we don't continue to hold them accountable, we can't expect change. So what is the Instagram handle and what's the website? So on both Twitter and Instagram, it's Exodus underscore refugee. And then on Facebook, it's Exodus Refugee Immigration. And if you go to our website, we have the icons on social media and links to our pages on there as well. Awesome. I'll make sure I link to that in the episode notes um, for anybody who's listening to this, you know, via the, the podcast apps. I'll make sure that I post them on my own Instagram too. So uh, keep an eye out for that. Um, you know, Sarah, Melissa, thank you guys so much for joining. Let's unpack that. Thank you for sharing a little bit about what you guys do and sharing a little bit about these, these challenges. Um, I have learned so much. <laughs> like I think you probably heard and saw me um, kind of live processing uh, some of this stuff. So um, I'm so grateful for the time that you spent with us uh, here on this podcast. So thank you for joining. Yeah. yeah, thank you so much for for making this space on your platform and making it happen. It's been, it's been great. Yeah, thank you so much. Awesome. Well, this has been another episode of Let's Unpack That. I hope that you guys enjoyed this and I hope that you'll consider um, following Exodus and taking action to donate. Um, You know, like I said, everything will be linked in the show notes. Um, You know, would love to have kind of a a follow up on the No Ban Act if it passes. Fingers crossed. I'll have uh, Sarah and Melissa back too to talk about that. I hope that you guys enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please don't hesitate to give us a like, subscribe, review, rate, whatever it is um, that helps us find uh, other listeners that we can share and connect these stories to. Um, Thank you so much for listening. We'll talk to you again next week. 